Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We're struggling. Our generation is trying to cope. Life is crazy. (laughs) James Baldwin wrote, For these are all our children, and we shall all profit by or pay for what they become. I'm Helga Davis. On this final episode of Helga, the Armory Conversations, I look to this next generation of artists. Playwright Wilson Castro, visual artist Raven Garcia, and photographer Viviana Sanchez sat down with me as we made a space together. We experienced what it means to be vulnerable with oneself and with each other. This is my conversation with playwright Wilson Castro, visual artist Raven Garcia, and photographer Viviana Sanchez of Park Avenue Armory's Youth Corps. You make me nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, take that back. Okay, sorry, sorry, I'm just being honest. What do you mean I make you nervous? (laughs) I don't know, I think I'm not used to somebody looking at me for so long. Let's talk about that, because I don't know how else I would communicate with you if I don't look at you. Mm -hmm. And my looking at you in this way, first of all, it's is to let you know that I'm here so that maybe, too, we can build some kind of trust. And so what do you see in my eyes when I look at you? My mom. I do see my mom in you. And when she looks at you like this, how do you feel? I feel loved. And so when I look at you like this, how else could you feel? I guess I could feel seen. You know, I think it's because I don't know you. I'm thinking to myself, I know her. She doesn't know me. I see my mom in her. She does not know who I am at all. And then when you look at me, it's like, does she know that? Like, does she know that I'm thinking these things? But like, the more time we're looking at each other and we're talking to each other, then those things go away. Is it normally intimidating or not wanted for people to look at you directly like this? No, I think it's because when it comes to people that are known by many, many people, it's, it's that interaction it feels awkward for me. It's unbalanced, I would say. I think that's the, that's the reason. Ah, mm-hmm. It feels unbalanced. Mm-hmm. And then when I look at you, what happens? Mm, I feel nervous, but more in a sense of I've never had a microphone put in my face before. I'm not mm. someone who's very like put like on a stage with a spotlight. So it's a little nerve wracking. Okay. Well, just keep breathing and we'll keep looking at each other. And if you need something, just say so. Okay. (laughs) What's happening with you? I'm excited. And I'm nervous, but I think you have to be nervous to care about it. So I think I'm the right amount of nervous. Mm. And when I look at you in your eyes, what does that bring up for you? I was trained to have eye contact through like my school, like theater program. So I feel like I'm like using a skill right now. Uh (laughs) Oh, cool. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a a singer whose name is Tony Bennett, and someone asked him, he was in his 80s already, whether or not he still got nervous. And he said, yeah, I still care. Hi, y'all. 
Hello. <laughs> Just say your names. Okay, my name is Viviana, but I go by Viv mostly. My name is Raven. I'm Wilson, Wilson Castro. Tell me a little bit about how you've been. It's exciting for me just to like be outside because I'm an introverted person. It's like I kind of store energy. And then when I uh, go outside, I'm very uh, expressive. Like I express myself like an extrovert. So when they told everyone to stay home, I said no problem. And I kind of like hid in a cave for like a year. So now it's like my, my energy release time. Mm. For me, after being at home for so long, I have to go back up to school and I dorm. So I feel like it's a lot for me because now I'm seeing like everybody and we're all stuck together on campus. I feel like it's a little too much for someone who hadn't seen anyone in like so long. Mm. And going back to classes, it's kind of hard, but I'm also happy to like see faces. It has its good and bad. I, I feel like I have to train myself to go back into public. Mm. Like Wilson, I'm also introverted, but I express myself like as if I'm mm -hmm. extroverted. And I've been going through some things. Um, it's kind of heavy, but like my dad passed on Thursday. Oh. And on. I actually don't have a good relationship with him. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. Hmm. <sighs> yeah. I kind of just wanted to say that I've been doing something different, which is relying on people. Mm-hmm. My friends. And it feels good to be supported because I usually don't ask anyone for anything. Mm -hmm. Well, I really thank you for coming here today anyway. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think I believe in like things happening for a reason. Like I have very spiritual. And I felt like whether or not I felt ready to talk to people that I don't know well, like I'm okay with being vulnerable. And like, I know that's going to help me. Is there something you want to say about your relationship with your dad and what was hard mm -hmm. about it for you? I grew up raised by my mother and my dad wasn't really around that much when, when he wanted to be because he has drug problems. He had drug problems and alcoholism. And I've held on to like a lot of anger for most of my life. But like now, I feel like I can think about good things too. The part that I, I want to ask you about is, do you feel guilty that you didn't have a good relationship with him? Do you feel... No. Do you... Because mm -hmm. I, I don't... It's not my fault. I don't carry that. I haven't spoken to him in a year. And I made that decision. And so you made that decision based on what? To protect myself from him because mm. he's a difficult person to be around. He affects me a lot. So I felt like I've already mourned him when I made that decision. But now it's like I'm mourning him in public because I was mourning him just within myself. But now I have to express that. Do you feel that you're the only one who holds the position you hold? So you made a choice not to be mm. in touch with him and around him for the last year to protect yourself? Were there people in your family who judged you for that decision? Well, my mom, she didn't judge me, but she, she was raised with both her parents, so I know it's hard for her to understand. Her version of forgiveness is to still stay in touch. She has her version and I have my own. 
So I decided I can forgive him and not have him in my life. Also, I have half brothers and they also did not talk to him for years. Mm -hmm. So because they understand me, I feel supported in that way. I don't feel judged anymore because, yeah, like society tells you that when someone dies, you're supposed to feel a specific way and you're supposed to talk about all these good things. And I don't really have many good things to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's with you in this moment. And so because we're all making a space, too, that's safe for all of us, we have to talk about what's here right now and not hold that in. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that because we're a lot of times encouraged to do the opposite. Don't tell anybody, don't ask for help, and numb out. Hmm. Are there things that you feel like you're mourning? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mine is regarding artistry or like self-artistry. I kind of feel like I'm somebody who was kind of given, uh, when I was a senior in college, my senior project, which is kind of, you know, your big thing, you know, especially where I went to, you don't really get to do anything until you're a junior, senior, unless you're like, you know, really favored or something like that. And I was not. So I was a playwright in college. And so I was putting up this big show, you know, self-produced, kind of like asking people for money, like crowdfunding to like put on this show, begging my friends to be in the show, writing this, you know, mediocre script that I was trying to sell. But then the pandemic ended the school year. So Mm -hmm. Then, and then I was too like prideful to do a Zoom show. And so I feel like I never graduated college. And also because at my school, I told you I wasn't favored or anything like that. I was actually like, like disliked by the other playwright of community. Well, wait, 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 wait. Sorry, there's a lot. And what does that mean you were disliked by a lot of the playwriting community? So I transferred from, I did one year in a certain college and then I went to a different college. And in the first college, I was like a big fish in a small pond. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to a New York school. Uh, and then there, you know, obviously you're, you have to make a little bit more noise, but I was very cocky because I had been such a whatever before, but a friend had shared a secret with me and I had not blurted out the secret, but I wrote a play about it. Mm. And the play had gotten into a festival. I wasn't trying to hide it. Like I didn't think it was a bad thing to do, which now looking back, it was a bad thing to do, but there was a lot of noise made about it. There was the word plagiarism thrown around because it was kind of their life experience that I took. And at the time I didn't really have a backbone. So it's like, I understand removing the piece for like sensitiveness or like, you know, for somebody's feelings, but I accepted the plagiarism charge. And so that word was kind of labeled with me for, and as someone who's trying to be an artist to have kind of unoriginality tagged to you. So I made a list of every (laughs) reference in my show and then the show never went up. So I graduated being the plagiarist. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Do you believe that you're a plagiarist? No. Now I don't mind it because I think I'm much more creative than taking inspiration from somebody's story. So, mm-hmm. but I do think it was that inspiration. But isn't that every play? That's what I'm thinking. But a lot of noise made, and not a lot of people on your side can make you think a lot of stuff. Right. 100%. But that's and that's also part of your culture now, mm-hmm. right? That instead of just having a conversation with someone, you go online and you call people names, and that becomes real. For me, I'm not mourning it, but it's more something I look down on myself a lot. I haven't got a a diagnosis yet, but I plan to. But it runs in my family. Depression runs in my family. And 
I think that I'm better than I give myself credit for. Mm-hmm. I do uh, visual art. I practice so much. I didn't give up, but with the depression like tacked on, I get tired easily. Going to school, working, I'm exhausted. But then I feel like if art is something I'm really passionate about, I need to make time for it. Mm-hmm. But my body doesn't, what your mind wants, your body does the opposite. So I didn't do anything. And during the pandemic, sometimes I couldn't even leave my bed. And that was hard. And I beat myself up like mm-hmm. all the time before bed. Because I'm just like, I had the whole day. I wasn't doing anything. Why couldn't I have just gotten up and practiced? Done a little bit, but I couldn't. And I did one piece of art and it came out much better than I had expected it to. It's like where I've been dreaming of like to be at this moment. And I was just like, after like almost like a year of like taking a break, I was like much better than where I had left off. And I was sitting there like, huh, I think I just needed the break. Because <laughs> I, I touched it and I was just like, but this is, but wait a minute. And it's like someone, I'm not confident in my art at all. Like at times I do stuff and I'm just like, I should be better in this aspect. Why am I not good in this aspect? But who are these everybody yeah. people? Her inner critic. Saying our inner that critics. you should be this or do, who, who are, who know, are the everybody's? Everybody is like something inside. Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I refer to everybody, but there is nobody at all saying these things. I'm not good at anatomy, but I feel like I should have been after the subjects I've been drawing for so long. Why am I not good at this thing already? Because you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you just said, Raven. Everybody is something inside. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. Uh, I've got a mean critic and it's a big label of everybody. (laughs) I have a similar issue, so I really relate to you with that. That Sometimes you feel like you have to prove to yourself that you're an artist. Because it's like you read the stories and the correlation between everyone who's had success. Especially if you work hard and you don't see the the improvement. Especially because there's no hours of an artist, right? Nine to five, whatever. I had a friend say this to me once. Part of being an artist is living. You know what I mean? Getting experience. I mean, maybe that's something that we all say so that we can relax, but I, <laughs> you know, but so we don't feel guilty, right? Yeah, we don't feel guilty about <laughs> not doing it. But yeah, I feel like often I also feel like I have to prove, if you agree with that wording, that I have to prove that I'm an artist to myself. And if I don't do anything about it, then it's like, you're fake. You know what I mean? Like you don't have new work coming out and you see all your friends coming out with work. One of the first conversations I had for the first season of the podcast was with a composer whose name is Henry Threadgill. And one of the things that he said during his conversation with me was, I need a lot of time to do nothing, to do absolutely nothing. And nothing is something. It is absolutely something. And that it, what it does or what it what he explained was that that's the time when his brain can process 
the things that he's seeing, the things that he's thinking, the music he wants to write, the, the music that he hears in his head. And he can't actually write the music that he needs to write until he takes that time to do nothing. And that it's actually a restorative moment and process for him. So you're right, it's, it's not doing nothing. It seems like nothing, perhaps, from the outside. But inside you, mm -hmm. there is a definite movement and place that it is leading you to and that it's asking you to trust. So that in that moment, that next moment, when you, when you put your pen to paper or you write your next thing or you have to tell me what you do. I'm a photographer and, uh, and an educator. All these things that I believe about myself, that I shouldn't be resting or I'm not good enough or I should be improving at a faster rate than I am. What is the evidence behind that? Like, why do I actually have to do that? And then my critic has nothing to say because there is no evidence. It's probably information that I got from other people or from TV or we do live in a capitalist society where we are supposed to be productive all the time. T. That's not even true. I do not live like, I don't know more. I don't do that anymore. So like spend time talking to yourself and like listening to your critic, question your critic too, you know? How are your parents in relationship to those days mm. when you can't get out of bed or you don't want to get out of bed or you can't get things done? And your critic is, is out there. Where are your parents in all of that? I think my mom is more understanding, as in I feel like she has those days too. But I feel like in some aspects, I guess, I think it's also she's stuck like in her generation where that just simply did not exist. Mm -hmm. So she, every time I'm like, it's not feeling as good. She's just like, yeah, well, you just got to power through it. And I'm sometimes I'm just saying to like, I know my body and I know I can at this moment. In my dad's case, I think he thinks I'm a little lazy. Huh. But it's also because I never really sat down to talk to him about how I felt. So I kind of give him that impression without explaining myself. And so I can't really be like, I'm upset at you for thinking this way. Is there a reason you haven't um, spoken with him? Do you feel that he'd be open to that kind of conversation with you? I feel like he would be good at listening. But in my case, I don't like showing any signs of weakness. Because? I'm not sure. What is it about him or about the way he is? I think he doesn't show weakness and he's rough around the edges. I feel like I can't convey what I want to say if I'm emotional around him. I feel like I have to be calm and collected when I talk to him. Like, I feel like it's easier to go to my mom and be like crying and rambling because I feel like somehow she'll pick it up and be like, yeah. Uh, I said basically nothing, but she understood everything. But I feel like with him, I have a list of things. Like, here is everything so that you will understand. Your evidence. Yes. But I just feel like they have two different ways of comprehending things. And I feel like me being emotional isn't what's going to make him understand. And he's not modeled that for you mm -hmm. before either. So it doesn't quite feel so safe for you to bring that to him. Mm -hmm. How does it feel to say that? Part of me is a little nervous to say it because I feel like they're going to listen back and be like, but why? <laughs> <laughs> and what's your answer to that? My answer is, 
maybe this is the easiest way to be a little more honest before I go to them face to face and be honest. Maybe it's nice to hear that they'll hear it from afar and, and get the vibe first before I lay all my feelings on the table. Mm-hmm. So this method is very good. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> this is not therapy, but it feels very close to it. It feels very therapeutic. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. At seven o'clock this morning, when I went for my walk, there was a person who I think is your age-ish who asked me if I wanted to buy some weed. It what was did you seven say? O- <laughs> it was seven o'clock in the seven morning, y'all. Morning. Seven o'clock. And then I, I saw some young girls a couple weeks ago who were buying some kind of cough syrup. And I asked them what they were going to do with that. And they were going to put it in something and drink it so they could be drunk. What are y'all doing? (laughs) We're trying to cope. (laughs) Life is crazy. (laughs) Is that a true thing? I think so. I do consume marijuana. That's all I do. We're We're struggling. Our generation is struggling. For me, consuming drugs has a lot to do with poverty and mental illness. I just got a full-time job offer, but this whole time I've been struggling to find a good job that I can pay and get an apartment in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I have a college education. Right. I know a lot of people who don't have a college education and do and have a graduate degree and they're still struggling. Yeah. So what can you do to cope with those things with failure, quote unquote, to make it and to succeed and to do the things that your parents once did, that you were taught? that if you follow these rules, this is the key to success. And it's actually not true. Hmm. So you get there and you're like, what am I supposed to do? Let me smoke some weed to (laughs) calm down and like get my anxiety back to normal levels so that I can continue the next day. It's funny that you mentioned poverty because I never developed any kind of addictive substance or whatever because I couldn't afford it. So it's like, I don't know. I don't have a choice in the matter. I know never never tried anything or refused to drink alcohol as well. Also, I'm not of age to buy it myself yet, but I know when I am, you know, when you hit 21, everyone's like, what's you're going to do for your party? Where are you going to go? And mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't know, because the, the main thing that everybody talks about when they hit 21 is that they're going to drink. And I don't plan to. It's not against anyone else. It's more of how I see myself. And I feel that I don't like the idea that anything can alter how I think or feel. I think that ideal to me is terrifying. It's not something I want to depend on because I feel like if I depend on anything, then it becomes habits that I can't shake off. If I'm not feeling good that day, I don't want to have to take something to feel better okay like i definitely understand why other people but the thought yeah, to me okay. is it's scary it's, and, and you could not understand why other people <laughs> do it too and it would still be okay is there anything else you want to ask each other i was gonna ask this since we came is like so i think we all do some form of art normally you know you get asked this all the time and don't even think about the process you're gonna take to get there or anything What's your dream? What do you want to do? Especially with your art. Yeah. To be quite honest, I just want to be comfortable, guys. Like, what I, does that mean? I don't want to be paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. 
I want to be in nature. I actually don't even want to be in New York City. So my dream would be to be a photographer and still be able to live a comfortable, serene life, closer to nature, raise my family. Very chill. <laughs> I've been doing this my whole life. I mean, I'm raised in New York. The hustle is ingrained in me. Mm -hmm. I want to retire the hustle. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to hustle anymore. <laughs> so I was sharing that I have the opportunity to be a photographer for a company full time as a salary. My first salary gig. <laughs> I've freelanced my whole life and I'm so close finally to getting to where I need to be. And that feels so good. And it's crazy timing because my dad just passed. But in some ways, I feel like he's here with me because he knew I wanted this. I found out that I was even thought about for the position the day that I found out that he passed. Wow. So I know there's a connection there. And I'm just going to let God just like create the pathways for me. I love that dream. And I love that connection as well. Mine, it's, it's hard because I, you know, we mentioned capitalistic society. So I, I, it's hard for me to set up a, a dream because I feel like I'm open to different kinds of stuff, but I'm a big fan of storytelling. You know what I mean? Like I love video games and I love to critique bad TV shows and I play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends and we group storytell. And I just want to tell stories because I feel like so many stories are so boring these days. I feel like so much stuff that we see is recycled and not original because it's the same people who are hiring the same people. You know what I mean? So it's like there's no room for new perspective. And it's not to be my perspective, but I think that it should be. But it does, right? Yeah, yeah it does okay. have to be my perspective. I, yeah, I want to yeah. hear your perspective. <laughs> and I want to hear your, I want to see your play. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of fantasy in general. So I just want to change the perception of fantasy being some kind of like white man's game. <laughs> like... Fantasy is very, very queer. Very, very queer. Indeed. Yes. If you didn't know, yeah, you heard then it now you know. <laughs> Got you. What about for you? Oh, me? Raven. Okay. So <laughs> I feel like every time I say it, it shocks people. I want to be a psychological horror comic book writer. Ah. So I've been really into psychological horror for a really long time. I was really afraid of things when I was younger, but I hit like 10. And I wasn't afraid of much of anything anymore. And I feel like the concept of something being able to scare me, I feel like is impressive. And I feel like it's a weird concept to have a favorite emotion. <laughs> but my favorite emotion is media-induced fear. Like, I don't want to be scared in my actual home. <laughs> but like, when a show is able to give me the worried knots in my stomach, I don't know, I like it. I'm like, yes, this is it. I, you're, <laughs> you're invoking a really unique, but intense feeling out of me and I want to be able to do that for other people so I've been obsessed with this concept I really want to write comic books and draw I want a story tell yes it's so nice to spend the morning with you likewise pre-breakfast thank you <laughs> <laughs> this is my breakfast <laughs> That was my conversation with playwright Wilson Castro, visual artist Raven Garcia, and photographer Viviana Sanchez of Park Avenue Armory's Youth Corps. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at 
H-E-L-G-A-D-A-V-I-S on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Ndege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. What's your relationship with the Park Avenue? Uh, I can start because I've I've been there the longest. <laughs> so when I was in high school in Brooklyn, my school was an architecture school. They had a partnership with the Armory due to the the architecture of the Armory is just very impressive. It's a mass scale building. So I applied. I believe I was 17 years old, and I haven't left. I mean. Here's what it is. You begin as a youth corps, which means that you are learning certain skills to work in an art institution because Mm -hmm. you're doing ushering. You're learning about the arts, speaking about the arts. You're creating art projects. And you're a liaison between the institution and the people who come. Exactly. But you're also meeting other kids from other schools. That was the coolest part, I think. And you're getting paid to do all these things. So... I continued. It actually gave me the interest to pursue this art education in college. I went to school for that, graduated in that, started teaching for the Armory part-time. It's like a really cool partnership because I like to spread my wings and do different things, but I can always have like a home at the Armory. So now I'm 26 and I'm still around. Um, well, I'm 20. I think I did it around the same age, 17. It's a little bit of a flex, but you have to write like an essay before you get your audition. And me and one of my friends were the first people to be auditioned in our group. And then we were the two to get it. So I was like, you didn't have to look at anyone else. I was right here all along, <laughs> the first one. <laughs> but I, I love the army so much. When the pandemic hit, I feel like the armory really was like a backbone because it kept me engaged with others. So that way I wasn't losing complete contact with people. I was still being engaged and talking to others, but I was still having some sort of like support. I I, I treasure the armory. Yeah, they're like a second. They become a second family to a lot of us. Mm -hmm. What about you, Wilson? I started it when I was 16, but I feel like I didn't really take it 100% seriously when I was in high school. I feel like I took it like an after-school program. And then I went to college and I kind of went ghost for like four years <laughs> or like two and a two, three years. But then I kept getting the emails of like, you know, this and that and whatever. And then I got the email about a certain program, the, the teaching apprentice program. And I was like, oh, let me apply for that. And I had this strategy that I was like, I know they would want to see me again. So they have to accept me into this program to see me again. <laughs> so it's like, because I knew it was kind of like a, a program that a lot of people would, be, would apply for. So I got in and then as I was exiting college, I kind of learned that that was a really privileged thing to have. So I felt like my ace or felt like my tool that I, I wasn't utilizing. So then when I came back from college or during the summer break, I really went hard with the Arbery, like saying yes to everything, trying to really show who I was. 
And then during the pandemic, they really helped because they had programs to do art and they never judged you on the art, no matter how, how much you stretched the concept. And then with the Zoom calls, that's actually when I started um, experimenting with my appearance because they would compliment me on how I looked in the little Zoom box. So I feel like it allowed me to be more of myself. And so I felt really appreciated. And then that's where I am now. <laughs>